ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Monday, the 4th of December. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. The Federal Cabinet will today consider new laws dealing with the recent High Court ruling that found indefinite detention was unconstitutional. That decision triggered the release of more than 140 people, including convicted murderers, rapists and drug traffickers. Under the new law, known as the Community Safety Scheme, some of those people could be back behind bars again through the expansion of Australia's preventative detention regime. From Canberra, his political reporter, Monty Boville. The start of the parliamentary summer break is just days away. But before MPs and senators head home, there's one issue the government wants and needs resolved. It's attempting to expand Australia's preventative detention regime, aimed at locking up some of the non-citizens released following last month's landmark High Court ruling on a definite detention. The Shadow Immigration Minister is Dan Tian. We want to work with the government to make sure that we can get as many as we can back in detention because it's just been so chaotic the way that they've handled this and we fear for community safety as a result. The legislation is modelled on anti-terror laws introduced under the coalition government that allow a person to be locked up again if they pose an unacceptable risk of committing a terrorism offence. Under the expanded laws, serious violent and sexual offenders could also be re-detained. To be called the Community Safety Scheme, the Immigration Minister would be able to raise concerns about an individual and a court would decide if they pose an unacceptable risk to the community, which would result in them being locked back up for a maximum of three years. In a statement, a government spokesperson has urged the coalition to support the measure, saying... If the coalition thought this model was appropriate to deal with terrorist threats to our country, they must support this model for serious violent and sexual offenders and work with the government to get this bill through the parliament urgently. The coalition has been piling pressure on the government over how it's handled the issue since the High Court's decision, and it's been calling for a preventative detention regime. Here's Dantine again. We will support the government's legislation if they get it right, if it's strong enough, if it has as its number one priority getting the commu- keeping the community safe, then we will support it. But its handling so far has been so appalling, we have to make sure that we're assisting them so they do get it right. Green Senator Sarah Hanson-Young has taken aim at the government for wanting to rush the laws through the parliament describing it as knee-jerk policy-making. There is a race to the bottom here. This is all about um, making uh, refugees and migrants a group in our community that, if, that, that people are afraid of. Um, I, I've, I've, I've debated immigration policy in this country for a long time and it's Groundhog Day. It's revolting. Parliament rises for the year on Thursday, but the government has vowed politicians will remain in Canberra until the new laws are passed. Monty Boval reporting there. Israeli forces are pushing into southern Gaza, according to Israeli Army Radio. Israel's ordered more evacuations in and around Gaza's second largest city of Khan Yunus. There's been heavy bombardment there, with the Israeli military offensive shifting further south into the Gaza Strip. The United States, meanwhile, is continuing to pressure Israel over the high civilian death toll. The ABC's global affairs editor, John Lyons, joined me a short time ago. 
Several of the reports are that the Israeli army is pushing further south uh, towards the Rafa crossing. Of course, a million and a half or so people have moved down to the south at the uh, urging of the Israelis to get out of the dangerous areas, which were in the north and then in around Gaza City. Those people have moved down to the south, but now it's clear that the Israeli army is now continuing its push south. The Israelis are saying that they believe that some of the Hamas commanders are among amongst those million and a half or so people. But of course, the Americans and others are becoming extremely concerned that with the Israeli army moving towards such a large number of people crowded together, that there is the potential there for further humanitarian catastrophes. Well, the United States Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin is standing by America's position that Israel has the right to defend itself, but he's talking about Israel's moral responsibility to protect civilians. Is America having any influence in moderating Israel's operations? Not at this stage. Uh, It appears that the Israelis are continuing on the course on which they've embarked some time ago. There is clearly increased pressure from the United States. There appears to be now a split between Washington and the Israelis. We've now seen a series of leaders, including Lloyd Austin, as you say, Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, has come out very strongly. And the US Vice President, Kamala Harris, has said quite clearly, too many innocent Palestinians have been killed. The Americans are urging the Israelis to change the way they're conducting this war, to be more strategic and to try to reduce the number of civilian casualties. It's rare that we see this number of civilians killed this quickly in any war. And so the Americans now are saying to Israel, change the way you're prosecuting the war. At this stage, however, it appears that the Israelis have not changed the way they're conducting the war. The head of Shimbet, Israel's domestic security agency, John, has said that Israel will hunt down Hamas, even in Qatar, Turkey and Lebanon, if it takes years. How significant is that statement? I think it's significant for two reasons. Firstly, it fits with the general view of the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, that we are coming to destroy Hamas and we will find you. But I think it's also significant because it's suggesting a longer time frame. It could well be that what the head of Shin Bet is doing is trying to lay the groundwork to suggest that not everything may be resolved in coming days or weeks in Gaza on the battlefield. However, it's become clear that that's becoming very difficult and complicated to, quote, destroy Hamas in Gaza. It's not that easy to wipe out both the command of Hamas and the idea of a notion, ideological notion of Hamas. And so what the head of Shin Bet seems to be saying is that this won't be over quickly. This will be an international search and we won't give up for some time until we get there. That's the ABC's Global Affairs Editor, John Lyons, reporting there from Jerusalem. There are big promises being made about renewable energy targets at the United Nations climate talks in Dubai. The events known as COP28, the host is the United Arab Emirates, one of the world's major oil producers. It says it'll triple its renewable energy capacity. But can the summit agree to phase out fossil fuels to cut carbon emissions when the man hosting the conference says doing that would take the world back to caves? Nicole Johnston reports. It's been a controversial summit, a meeting of world leaders and climate campaigners in the heart of the Arabian Gulf, one of the biggest oil and gas producing regions in the world. 
The president of COP28 is Sultan Al-Jabir, the head of the United Arab Emirates National Oil Company, ADNOC. And now former US Vice President and climate advocate Al Gore has slammed the host, saying Al-Jabir can't be an honest broker. They have captured the COP process itself now and overreached, abusing the public's trust by naming the CEO of one of the largest and least responsible oil companies in the world uh, as head of the COP. It's an abuse of the public's right to have confidence in the processes by which the decisions about humanity's future are made. More than 100 countries already support phasing out fossil fuels. This week, climate delegates will debate whether a final agreement on this can be reached. But COP President Sultan Al-Jabir said last month that phasing out fossil fuels would take the world back into caves. Meanwhile, more than 115 countries have vowed to triple their investment in renewable energy by 2030. Tim Buckley is the Director of Climate Energy Finance. He says it's a strong start to the conference. A tripling of renewable energy capacity, depending on when the start date is, will uh, be an, a game changer. Like at the end of the day, China is installing 20,000 megawatts of wind and solar every month right now. America's got the Inflation Reduction Act. That's starting to dramatically change the level of installation of new capacity over in America. And Europe on the back of Putin has uh, gone into a step change. So it is largely in train already, but it's great to see the uh, start of the COP with a serious level of ambition. Tim Buckley says the other important area for Australia is reducing the country's emissions from methane, which comes from agricultural production, mainly livestock. Australia is one of the largest methane emitters in the world, and so far we've seen no action on it. So that's going to be an area where greater focus on methane would have very significant implications for Australia. And uh, Minister Bowen wants to come out as one of the good guys, to use his own words. He's going to actually have to probably elaborate on what Australia is going to do. Meanwhile, 50 of the world's top fossil fuel companies, representing a third of global oil and gas production, have agreed to eliminate emissions from their operations by the middle of the century, giving them 27 years to get it done. Nicole Johnston. For a long time, green hydrogen's been promoted as clean and abundant and the fuel of the future in decarbonising heavy industry. But a new Grattan Institute report suggests there's a hype around hydrogen that's led to some unprofitable investments. And it's calling for a new focus and federal government subsidies for the fuel's potential use in just iron, steel, alumina and ammonia industries. Any guest reports? From hydrogen task forces to hydrogen hubs and dreams of hydrogen powering industrial towns, Tony Wood from the Grattan Institute says hydrogen has been surrounded by hype. So I think the hype came from A, the enthusiasm created by government saying, look, hydrogen looks really cool. And secondly, the challenges um, were not properly understood and now they are. Those challenges involve transport and storage and high production costs of splitting hydrogen from water. So Tony Wood says some hydrogen uses are unlikely to have a future. The applications for hydrogen broadly is ones that we really should forget about because they don't make any sense. We would include, for example, replacing natural gas in the gas network. That's because, he says, electricity is simpler and cheaper And on the roads, hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicles are proving more expensive than other EVs. In our view, 
for light vehicles, that is passenger cars and light commercial vehicles, it never will make any sense. But it might very well make a lot of sense for heavy, heavy vehicles. In his new report for the Grattan Institute, he recommends Australian governments focus hydrogen policy on three key industries, ammonia, alumina and steel. He's calling for subsidies of up to $2 billion a year to projects using green hydrogen. Those three are not only things we have an industry in Australia today, but where we could, and therefore converting them to use hydrogen would help decarbonise Australia's industry but it would also mean we've got some potential really significant growth, which will be necessary if we want to replace the current revenue that we get from exporting fossil fuels, such as coal and gas. But to ensure green hydrogen's future, two more changes are needed. A bigger renewable electricity grid and a higher carbon price. The government currently has and has just introduced a thing called the safeguard mechanism. That needs to, in our view, be strengthened so it provides a much greater incentive to remove those things that produce carbon today. A spokesperson for Climate Change and Energy Minister, Chris Bowen, says renewable hydrogen has a bright future and is key to achieving net zero, especially in industrial sectors. Meanwhile, the Australian Hydrogen Council CEO, Fiona Simon, has welcomed the Grattan Institute's report. You know, moving beyond hype and sort of wishful thinking that it would all just happen by itself and recognising that it's challenging and recognising the role that government needs to play, I think is a really positive thing and I would definitely agree with the Grattan Institute on that. Australian Hydrogen Council Chief Executive Fiona Simon ending that report by Annie Guest. Mental health advocates are warning laws allowing insurance companies to discriminate on mental health grounds are causing people to avoid seeking help. Right now, insurers are allowed to use mental health grounds to reject claims or deny coverage altogether. And many say that's out of line with community expectations. Hacks Shalila Madura has the story and a warning it does discuss sexual assault and mental illness. In 2017, Belle Grati was sexually assaulted and in the aftermath, she decided she needed professional help. I did go to my GP, so I sought out to get medication, to get a referral, to talk to a professional and to go on like a mental health plan. She managed her anxiety and depression until last year when her mum died and she went back to counselling and using antidepressants. She's doing much better now. Probably since last year, I haven't sought much help and I'm now off my medication. But last month, Belgrati was denied coverage for life insurance on mental health grounds. The insurer, Zurich, gave her little information as to why she was knocked back. But Bell believes it was because of the counselling and medication from the two past traumas she disclosed during the application process. I, like, burst into tears at work because it just brought everything back. It was like I was being punished for trying to help myself. A spokesperson for Zurich told the ABC that according to data from 2016, only 4% of applications for cover were denied on mental health grounds. It is important for an insurer to review an applicant's history to decide the most appropriate available cover. As such, when making a risk assessment, underwriters will consider both individual personal circumstances and the latest industry research on the relevant health conditions. 
Ellen Tilbury is a lawyer at the Public Interest Advocacy Centre and lead author of a report looking into insurance discrimination. Insurers lump all of different types of mental illness in together and they don't differentiate kind of based on the severity or the circumstances of the individual. As it stands, insurers can legally deny coverage altogether on mental health grounds or deny coverage for claims resulting from a certain condition. Insurers are covered by anti-discrimination laws, including the Disability Discrimination Act, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of disability. But they are subject to specific exceptions that enable them to discriminate where the discrimination is reasonable. CEO of Mental Health Support Service Beyond Blue, Georgie Harmon, is frustrated by the slow pace of change in the insurance sector. Over the last 17 years, we have attempted to try and understand and ask the the industry to work with us to show us their algorithms, to show us how they're making decisions around what risks they're prepared to take. She's concerned by stories of people choosing not to seek professional help due to mental health exemptions in their insurance policies. Unfortunately, we do know that this happens. We feel the insurance industry is out of step with public sentiment and indeed consumer expectations. Georgie Harmon from Beyond Blue, ending that report from Shaila Madura. And if this story has raised concerns for you or anyone you know, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Brisbane Lions have won their second AFLW Premiership in another successful showcase of the women's game. It was a thrilling contest. The Lions trailed the Kangaroos at every change before storming to victory with four unanswered goals in the final term. Oliver Gordon filed this report. A sellout crowd at Melbourne's Prince's Park gathers for the AFLW Grand Final. The stands were a sea of the trademark blue and white of the Kangaroos, and the hosts in their maiden Grand Final were on top early. Clears it at half post height. What an open up for the Kangas. One straight to nothing, and it's taken 16 minutes to get a goal. In the but the Kangaroos' seven-point three-quarter time lead would evaporate in the crucial final term. Brisbane power forward Dakota Davidson kicked the first two goals of the last quarter, swinging the momentum towards the Lions. It's one, Davidson 30 out, returns the Lions to the lead in the last term of the grand final. Two in a row for Dakota. By the time the final siren went, the Lions' lead had stretched to 17 points. Balls in the middle of the ground, kicked into the centre bounce area. But the Queens of consistency will claim their second cup. The Brisbane Lions return to the Den. Premiers of 2023 by 17 points. It's Brisbane's second AFLW Premiership. Captain Brianna Conan was awarded Player of the Match after starring in defence and midfield. And she acknowledged the tenacity of the playing group and the club. Oh yeah, to be written off year and year again, like just goes to show how good a group and how good a culture and program we've got at this club. I just couldn't be more proud of, of my girls today. Her Lions teammate Sophie Conway says this flag feels even more special than the club's first in 2021. We as players build something really special. We have people come and go consistently and look what we continue to achieve. And um, I think this one feels even better than the 21, you know, especially after what we've been through. North Melbourne captain Emma Kearney says her side has a lot to be proud of. Really disappointing, but I think for us it's just about be disappointed but don't be disheartened. That was the message from Croc. Um, we've had a terrific year. The growth in our 
group has been tremendous and we just got to look to get better. It marks the end of the seventh season for the AFLW. The league started in 2017 with eight teams and has now expanded to 18. Oliver Gordon reporting. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lang. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. It's one of the most watched defamation cases, with both Brittany Higgins and Bruce Lehrman taking the stand in the federal court this week. Today, reporter Patrick Bell on the case and the key evidence. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.